Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past episodes by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. So today we are continuing the Vegan Voices series, inspired by the new Vegan Voices anthology that's edited by Joanne Kong, where I'm interviewing some of the writers from this inspiring book. I contributed an essay to this book as well. And today we have Ray Sakura, a longtime vegan advocate in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We had such a wonderful conversation, and I'm so excited for you to hear it. But first, I have a few thoughts to share. So this is a follow-up from our most recent Glimmers of Hope segment. The Glimmers of Hope segment is where I report on good news stories, good things that are happening for animals around the world. And I'm happy to report that the vegan mayoral candidate that I told you about, Eric Adams, won his election. So New York now has a vegan mayor. His campaign was focused on racial justice. He's only the second black mayor of New York, and he's vegan. So it's really great to have vegans in powerful places, and we're seeing it more and more. So we really wish Eric Adams the best of luck as New York City's new vegan mayor. Go Mayor Adams! And another thing that I wanted to talk about, at this time, world leaders are gathering in Glasgow, Scotland for the big climate summit. And I feel like I want to acknowledge it and talk about it a bit. And if you aren't aware or familiar with what this is, it's a two-week convergence of world leaders like they had in Paris six years ago, where the world leaders come together, they talk about the climate crisis, and they make promises for emissions reductions for their countries. And this one in Glasgow is supposed to kind of assess how the countries were have done since Paris, how those agreements, the Paris agreements, have held up, and to hopefully make bolder and better and bigger promises. So I've been listening to a lot of the news coverage, and it has me thinking about a lot of things. And it's disheartening to hear how most, I think actually all of the countries have not met their goals um, that were set in the Paris Agreement six years ago. And anything that's promised in Glasgow is voluntary. I mean, nothing comes out of these negotiations that's mandatory or regulated by any world body or the UN or anything. No one's held accountable. And it's so precarious that a country can just bow out, pull out, as we did for for the four years of Trump. It's also disheartening to know that so little attention will be given to the easiest and cheapest and fastest way to reduce admissions, and that's encouraging a global shift to a vegan diet. But it's hopeful that we have now a representative there, President Biden, that has apologized for our absence from, well, giving a crap about the world, (laughs) and uh, is at least trying to make some bold steps. Uh, But it's just so slow, so painfully, painfully slow, the progress. It's very frustrating. So one piece, one news piece 
on Glasgow that was really powerful and poignant uh, came from journalist David Muir, who recently went to Madagascar to cover the climate crisis, the drought there. Madagascar is an island off the coast of East Africa, and someplace that I am familiar with from the diversity of wildlife being kind of a, a National Geographic buff, but there are millions of humans that are there as well, living and dying because it hasn't rained. There hasn't been any significant amounts of rain in years, and people are starving. I'm sure the wildlife is suffering as well due to the lack of rain that wasn't mentioned in this piece, but David Muir was describing how small the children were because they were starving and that they appeared much younger than they actually were. The scientists say that this is climate driven. And I just, I can't help but think how these villages with so few cars subsisting on mostly plant foods, they barely contribute to the problem. You know, it's our Western lifestyles that have reached around the world and caused this suffering. It's just so painful. I mean, the least we can do is live vegan. The least we can do. But the conference in Glasgow does make me feel hopeful. I know it's just barely enough, but at least, at least we're talking about it. We're concerned uh, as a global society and, you know, I seem to fluctuate between this hope and despair all the time. And Ray and I talk about this actually in the upcoming conversation. But there are signs of hope everywhere. And I love magazines. I used to have a lot of subscriptions to magazines, but I've, I've reduced them over the years because of all the paper and the paper waste. But I still get three magazines in the mail, uh, Veg News, National Geographic, and Time. And I like keeping up with Time and Nat Geo because I think that they're a good snapshot of what the average person or the general population is thinking about social issues with Time Magazine and environmental issues with Nat Geo. And Nat, Nat Geo actually, it, it helps, it keeps me inspired to protect this magnificent planet and her animals. I mean, when you get National Geographic in the mail, there's there's really no need to travel. <laughs> it's it's so incredible to go to all these places in these pages of the magazine and learn about the diversity of life on this planet and the animals. Anyway, I, I'm off on a tangent. But recently in Time Magazine, I was thrilled to see an article. It was a small piece called Reduce Reliance on Animal Sourced Food. And it was in a section that was around ideas for a more just and fair world. There were short articles on strengthening democracy and reducing emissions from energy, but here was this really hard-hitting piece on the detrimental impacts of animal agriculture and animal products and animal foods, and this author didn't hold back. I mean, it could have easily been an article in Veg News or Sentient Media, which is a wonderful animal rights online media news source. I highly recommend Sentient Media. And so this article, it starts by saying, 
No rate of growth is sustainable when the world has finite resources. Producing food through animals is inefficient, wasteful, and dangerous. Today, animal agriculture, including many kinds of meat, dairy, and eggs, as well as fish farming, uses roughly 80% of all arable land and 41% of all fresh water. And it goes on and on. And I mean, there's things in here about uh, zoonotic disease and COVID and, uh, you know, just it's it's really fish farming. It's amazing, actually. <laughs> it's, I mean, this article, like I said, could easily have been in a vegan publication. This would never have been in Time magazine just a few years ago. We are really making progress. We're now taken seriously in the discourse, at least from the climate perspective. Of course, it's not enough, and there's so much to be frustrated about in Glasgow, including meat on the menu at the conference. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. But I love that numerous vegan groups have used this, uh, this event to get the message out, and I recently signed on to a letter to the leaders at the conference by, it was a letter from the Interfaith Vegan Coalition encouraging them to adopt the plant-based treaty, and there's lots more, lots more uh, activism around it. Hopefully, eventually, we will be heard and I do love to hear Greta Thunberg excoriate our, what she calls so-called leaders. You go, Greta. I mean, she, she makes me hopeful that this upcoming generation may be the true change makers. So I think you're going to love this interview with Ray. The, the audio quality is not the best in the recording. It, it does get a little better as it goes along. So bear with it. Bear with me. Okay, here we go. All right, let's bring in our guest now. Today we have Ray Sikora, and she has been a spokesperson for animals, the environment, and human rights for over 40 years. And Ray is the co-founder of the Institute for Humane Education, Veg Fund, Santa Fe Vegan, and the Plant Peace Daily. She's also the co-founder of Route 66, a vegan food truck that went to a brick-and-mortar cafe in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And she's the co-author and author of numerous books and was also selected for the Vegan Hall of Fame in 2013 by the North American Vegan Society. Welcome to the podcast, Ray. Thank you, Hope. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking with you. And I like to start with a bit of background, just an origin story of how you went vegan, why you went vegan. I know that you've been doing this work for a very long time. So I'm, I'm always fascinated with people like me that went vegan back in the 70s, 80s, wherever, you know, so long ago. So tell us your story. My story is a long time ago, so about 45 years ago. Well, I could start with the vegetarian story. That was even longer. Yeah. That was when I was 15. And wow. I didn't know anybody who was vegetarian. I barely knew what that meant. And I was with a friend in a big city, and she and I had just eaten hot dogs, <laughs> <laughs> it was in Chicago. It was 
Chicago red hot hot dogs. And <laughs> we had just downed hot dogs. And then she wanted to go into a leather shop. And we walked into this huge leather shop and there were skins hanging everywhere and it smelled like leather. And I was very aware, dead animals. And I said to her, don't buy anything in here. It's all dead animals. And the woman behind the counter with like no malice, just a question said, oh, do you eat meat? And I know I had just eaten this hot dog. And my 15 year old brain at first, I thought, what does meat have to do with dead animals? <laughs> wow. And then my, the light bulb went on and I yeah. said to the woman, no, I don't eat meat. And my friend looked at me like I was crazy. And when we left that leather shop, she said, why did you lie to that woman? I said, I did not lie. I will never eat meat again. I just never put it together. Wow. And I never did. From, and that was from one question, Hope. Isn't that amazing? Like It is. You know, we is. Think that, you know, in order to shift someone or get them to open their heart, we have to do all these like mental gymnastics and emotional things. And it was just one question that, boom, turned the light bulb on for me. So then I was, I never ate meat again. And then when I was 20, I happened upon a dairy farm. I was renting from the dairy farmer on the same land. And I heard a sound I had never heard from there before. And I got on my bike and I rode over to his place. And what I came across shocked me. They were loading the male calves onto a truck pushing them up a ramp and the males were crying and they were crying for their moms. The moms were bellowing for the babies. And I went around the barn and I saw the moms hope they were pressing against the barbed wire. And some of them were bleeding from their chests from pressing against the barbed wire, trying to get to their babies. And I asked my landlord, the dairy farmer, where they were taking those calves and he said oh it's the males and and you know Danny the artificial inseminator you know we don't have any use for the males and I was blown away I had just never thought about that there was any cruelty in dairy and I said to my landlord I said I will never eat any dairy again and those calves were going to the veal facility nearby and it just broke my heart. Yeah. So I never did dairy again. But the bigger thing that happened that day was that I decided I'm going to start researching everything. I want to know how my lifestyle impacts the life around me. And there was so much I realized that I was unaware of. I just, you know, everything that we learn as kids. And none of it is about how do you support life with your lifestyle, you know, all life. And so I had a lot of blind spots and I decided to start researching like mad. And I started visiting egg facilities, other dairy farms, everything. I just started visiting these places. And then I decided I am not going to consume any animal products. I'm not going to eat them, wear them. I'm not going to contribute in any way as long as I'm aware of what's going on. But I didn't know the word vegan. I had I'd never met someone who was vegan. And I just, you know, just decided to do this. I thought I was the only one on the planet. <laughs> and then I met a woman and she called herself vegan. And I'll never forget that woman, young woman. And 
real healthy and positive. And she called herself vegan. I said, what is that exactly? And when she told me what it was, I said, oh, that's me. I was so excited. Like I had a word for myself and I knew one other person doing this. And, you know, it was great. And I never faltered from it from that point when I was 20, which is 45 years ago. Uh, you know, there's, I think when you're doing it for ethical reasons, it's really nearly impossible to turn back. Yeah. And you hear often about people that go vegan for health reasons or even the environment now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that can be a number one reason for people now. Uh, but when they get in, when they learn, when they open themselves up to the suffering and the moral and ethical implications for the animals, that's what keeps them vegan. We hear that all the time from longtime vegans. Uh, So yeah, the the ethical part is so critical and it it makes it, I think it makes it easier, right? You know, it's like you, you, you look at this food as suffering. So how can you, how can you eat it? Absolutely. You know, there's like no question about it. You know, whereas the health, if somebody goes into it through the health door, you know, there's always these new studies coming out or new diets coming out. And they're like, oh, never mind. I'm going to try keto and I'm going to try this. You know, (laughs) it's very different than doing it for ethical reasons. And sometimes people come in through one of the other doors, you know, oh, I'm doing it for my health or I'm doing it for the environment or, you know, they come in through one of those doors, but they end up finding out about the ethical issues and then it's solid. So Ray, you have written an essay for the new anthology, Vegan Voices, edited by Joanne Kong. And this is a series where we're interviewing several authors from the anthology and your essay is called, There Is No Other. And I got to read it recently, and it's really a beautiful reflection on being judgmental of others and how we see others, how sometimes our proximity or familiarity with others, both human and non-human, can reflect our treatment of them and how we see them. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little more about this article. Well, you know, in a nutshell... It's really about looking at how we see the world around us and how we separate ourselves in these different ways. And certainly when it comes to, for instance, other humans, if we don't share culture and language, it's very hard to understand the person who we're with or who we hear about. Um, We don't understand their humor. We don't understand their suffering, any of it. If we don't share culture and language, those are really important aspects. And so if we have that hard a time, that difficult a time, sharing and understanding someone else, because we don't share culture and language and they're part of our species, imagine how difficult it is for us to do that with other species where we definitely don't share culture and language. You know, even even the species who we often share our homes with, cats or dogs or reptiles or rabbits or whoever the companion animals are in someone's home. 
you know, we try our best to understand them and know what their needs are. And yet, you know, it can be challenging. Please just tell me what's going on. <laughs> you know, mm. it's really hard. And so yeah. it's really about assuming that we all want the same things. We all want a life with as little suffering as possible, as much comfort as possible. We all need nourishment in a variety of ways, physical nourishment, emotional nourishment. Uh, so it's really looking at that and, and our judgments are, they're just, they're taught really. A lot of our judgments are something that we learn from our families or from society. And those judgments, I love when they're blown out of the water. You know, I have them too. I have the judgments, we all have them. You know, so I'll give you an example. Uh, I got onto a, a small airplane and I was flying to a conference and I often bring food with me. So I had this container of food and I kind of sat down, there was a guy across the aisle and I sort of tried to put my back to him to have some privacy while I ate. And I put my back to him as best I could. And, you know, I looked at the guy and he was wearing like what looked like a golfing sweater, you know, pastel golfing sweater and pastel shoes and matching pants. And I thought, oh, you know, we are different worlds. All my judgments about this guy. And I, I could observe my judgments, but also realize I still had the judgments. Like I have nothing in common with this guy. So I kind of turned my back to him and I start eating my food. And he says, what have you got there? And I said, oh, just some lunch. He said, yeah, what is it? And I said, well, it's um, this grain called quinoa <laughs> and tempeh and vegetables with a sauce on it. That's what I've got for my lunch. And he said, oh, I love tempeh. And it blew my mind. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. He knows what tempeh is. And I turned, I said, you know what tempeh is? He said, yeah. He said, are you vegan? And I, then I was really blown away. He said it correctly, you know, like the whole thing. <laughs> and I said, um, yeah, I am. He said, me too. And I said, I said the dumbest thing, Hope. I said, oh my God, you really don't look like someone who would be vegan. <laughs> it was like such a stupid thing to say, but it just came out of my mouth without thinking. And then I said, why are you vegan? Because I was just so shocked by it all. Because this was the guy I supposedly had nothing in common with. Right. And, wow. And he said, well, I had bypass surgery and I did some research and realized that would be probably my best path if I was going to not repeat the surgery. And I said, wow. And I said, are you hungry? He said, I am a little hungry. And I said, look, I have an extra little bowl here and I'll split this with you. So we ate together. <laughs> Wow. But, you know, it really taught me, you know, I think I'm so progressive and so open minded. And <laughs> it was just one of the many times that my stereotypes are blown out of the water. And, and I love when that happens, because, you know, it's just these judgments we have and assumptions and stereotypes. And yeah, yeah. And it's really beautiful when someone comes along who just makes me realize I have these judgments and I have to examine them. 
Yeah, that it reminds me of when I used to, well, before the pandemic, uh, go out and do public activism, leafleting and tabling. And sometimes people would, would instruct others to avoid certain people like, oh, well, they'll never be vegan, you know, certain whatever cultures or someone looks like a different like a guy with a ball cap that has a hunting on it or fishing or, you know, something like that, that just, oh, don't waste your leaflet on them or don't talk to them. And I did not have that philosophy. I was like, you know, you never know. You just never know. Anyone can open their heart. And I always felt that I should give a leaflet to everyone uh, because you just, you never know. And that your story just kind of proves that, right? Yeah, and it's true, you know, I've done a lot of tabling and leafleting also, and I'm always surprised, you know, every time there's at least one person who surprises me, either direction, you know, there can be someone who comes up to the table and I'll think, oh, one of us. Right, and, yeah. And then That's that person right. will be like, there's nothing wrong with eating. Yeah. <laughs> and then they start it and I'm like, ooh, I misjudged that one. Yeah, you know, that's right. I, can't but I, judge a book by its cover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's true when we're looking at other species. You know, we want to be seen as individuals. And we don't want to just be clumped as part of a group and judged as that group. You know, it's very easy to sort of judge a group. It's very easy to say, oh, you know, like people will say, oh, chickens, they're so stupid. You know, and when we do that, when we put any individual into their group and judge them as that group, it's very easy to stop caring about the individual. Right. So that's also part of the article, you know, for the book is that see the individual, you know, stop just seeing the group. Yeah. You know, a woman came up to our table and we were tabling and, and she said, I'm I'm a vegetarian, except I eat chicken. And <laughs> I said, oh, I said, of all the different species you could eat, how did you choose chickens? And she said, well, you know, chickens. And I'm like, I do know chickens. Tell me <laughs> how you decided to start eating them or not stop eating them. And she said, well, you know, chickens, they're stupid. And I said, oh, I have a completely different experience of chickens. Do you want to hear about my experience of chickens? She said she did want to hear my experience. And I said, oh, that's so great. I said, because I have some really dear friends who are hens. And I started telling her stories about them because I have some amazing hen friends. And when I was telling her these stories, I could see she was just shocked, you know, them knowing their names, them protecting their babies, you know, like all of it and wanting to be held and scratching up my legs if I don't hold them, you know, whatever it is. Mm. I was telling her about all my different hen friends. And I said, so you see, they're just individuals. They're not stupid. They're brilliant for what they need to survive. And they're all very different. They have personalities. And she just was quiet for a moment. And then she said, well, I guess I don't eat chickens anymore. Said, That's probably good. You know, yeah. And then she walked away. But that difference between hearing about individuals and judging the group, you know, was very apparent 
in that interaction. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's, you did a wonderful job of introducing her to, you know, the incredible complexity of chickens. But I think another factor is that even if a group is unintelligent, you know, not that chickens are at all. (laughs) I don't mean to imply that uh, because we know differently, but what does it matter? Uh, You know, it, 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 yeah. If there's a group of people or another species that is less intelligent and, you know, and, and judging intelligence is such a, well, human, yes, (laughs) Uh, you know, so there's that, but that shouldn't be a factor in whether we cause them to suffer or whether we eat them, you know, every animal, no matter what their level of, you know, so-called intelligence wants to live and, you know, and doesn't want to suffer. And that's all that should matter. Right. And if we are, I think I even asked that woman, another question I asked her was, oh, is intelligence a measure of how much compassion we should show towards someone? Right. And would you do that with humans? Right. If a human who is less intelligent, would you think, oh, we can experiment on them, we can eat them, we can abuse them? You know, of course not. You know, right. I mean, there was a time, certainly, when that was true. If, you know, if a human was less intelligent, they were treated with, you know, they were institutionalized or experimented on. But luckily, we have mostly evolved out of that. And it's certainly not seen as morally acceptable anymore. So exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we've got to expand that circle of compassion to to animals. So another thing in your article that I really liked was that you touched on animal culture. This is something that I think is very interesting and is starting to uh, be discovered by scientists. And I know that in National Geographic just recently, they've had uh, pieces on on whale culture, on the culture of whales. And they're learning that animals actually do have culture, which is beyond just like instinct or biological uh, behavior. It's actually learned culture and it differs within the same species. It can differ from region to region, different cultures. And this is a really, really cool concept. And you talk a little about it in the, uh, in the article. You know, you bring up whales. I mean, whales have different behaviors and different language depending on what region they're in. Right, right. You know, so yeah. if there are like migrating pods of whales and they're coming from different regions, they do exactly what we would do if we were traveling in an area where we didn't know if anyone else spoke our language, we would say hello to find out, do they know my language? And whales do this. One pod comes across another pod. They give a few words, which is whistles and clicks for them. And if that other pod speaks the same language, basically let the party begin because they go crazy. They start socializing with each other and mating. And I mean, they go wild. They're so excited. You speak our language. And if they don't speak the same language, it's kind of like, you know, a few hellos and then like, oh, never mind. And they move along. 
because mm. it's a little bit of a foreign culture to them and a foreign language. You know, it, it's so presumptuous of we humans to assume that we are the only ones who have distinct culture and language for different regions or, or for what's necessary in our region. We're very much, our culture is established by climate, land, region, everything. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, everything yeah. in our surroundings. Yeah. And the same is true for other species. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows the complexity. I mean, this is something that, you know, was only attributed to humans, just like we said, only humans use tools and things like that. Culture wasn't seen as something that the animal kingdom had. And now we know that animals absolutely have culture. They're incredibly complex. So uh, really fascinating. You know, I would love it if, if humans could just open their minds and their hearts to just do as little harm as possible to all life, yeah, you know, including trees and the environment and all species. Um, but hope we're not quite there. Um, you know, we're you look at what we but... other humans. Yeah, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe, and I, you know, it's 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 hard to see it when there's so much harm and hurt in the world and the planet just really crying for help right now with all the fires mm -hmm. and floods and the weather. But I do see so much progress too, and I know that you, after forty years in this, what progress have you seen in the vegan movement? Oh my God. <laughs> okay. So I am actually <laughs> shocked by every time I go to the grocery, there are new vegan products. Yes. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing? I can't keep up with all I of them. I know. <laughs> like not just new vegan products, but they actually say vegan on products that they don't need to say vegan on. Yes, yeah. It's like a marketing tool now. And I'm like, whoa, has the world changed? Yes. So when I was first choosing veganism and practicing veganism, you couldn't find any of those foods. I made my own tempeh. Yeah. I had an incubator with like oh, wow. a light bulb and a cooler. I made my own tempeh. I made my own tofu from like soybeans. Wow. <laughs> you know, you couldn't find any of that. But now... It's like when somebody says to me, oh, I'd love to be vegan, but I love ice cream. I'm like, ice cream, that's your issue? Whoa, go to the grocery and look at the, any grocery. You know, it doesn't have to be a natural food store. And look at the vegan ice cream section and you'll have too many choices. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. amazing where things have gone. And even products like um, health and beauty stuff, you know, vitamins or lotions or whatever. Now it's like the thing, you know, they say vegan on them if they want to appeal to a broad base. Yes. Yeah. You know, so I never thought in my lifetime I would see things come as far as they have. You know, if you look at things like some of these uh, veggie burger companies that it's so meat-like, um, people are investing in them because they're like, ooh, this is the trend. This is where things are going. It's really amazing to watch the economics of it and the social acceptance. You know, you can't go to a restaurant anywhere, certainly in our area and in most areas of the U.S., and not find vegan options. Yeah. You know, when we go to Mexico in the winter or Central America, it's actually easier 
because there are more vegan restaurants and more vegan options. We just have a great time with it. Like, ooh, let's go to another restaurant. <laughs> so great. That's great. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned ice cream because that was my holdout thing. And when I when I tell these stories, it's it I it know it, it always reminds me of like when parents tell kids, you know, well, I had to walk miles in the snow to get to, you know, but, but it's true. If you were a vegan in the seventies and eighties, you know, and I, I loved ice cream. I was a big ice. I mean, I would eat like a pint a day pretty much when in my youth. And when I decided to go vegan, that was my one holdout thing because there wasn't any at the time, you know, this is the eighties. There wasn't any vegan ice cream, except sometimes you could find rice dream. That was the first one was rice dream. At least one of the first ones that I could find, but it was, it was all icy and, you know, and it just, it wasn't, it was, it just wasn't that good. It was like kind of, ugh, you know, it's like kind of did the job, but it wasn't that great. And, and then I'd go and like get a pint of Haagen-Dazs and go and like sneak somewhere and eat a pint of Haagen-Dazs. Ice cream was definitely my holdout, but now it's amazing. I mean, Ben and Jerry's has these rich, crazy ice creams, even soy delicious. And, you know, if you want to go beyond something that's just vanilla and chocolate, I mean, there is so much decadent non-dairy ice cream now that- I know, for better or worse, it's out there. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> Moderation. <laughs> have to hold back. But yeah. So ice cream. Okay. Ice cream. That was like- that's great. Now you have ice cream you can eat. Imagine if you were me, a cheeseaholic. Oh, you know, wow. I was born in Wisconsin. I yeah. think I was born like cheeseaholics. And the cheese, remember how it used to taste the supposedly vegan cheese was just like eating plastic. <laughs> you might as well eat the wrapper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so bad. Yeah. You are now unlimited choices in the cheese department. Yeah, it's come so far. It's yeah, come so true. far. And it, and I think it's unfortunate that a lot of people tasted it back when it was icky, you know, and so they still have that impression in their minds, but there's so much good cheese now, Miyoko's and Chow Cheese and uh, Follow Your Heart, so many good brands. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that you've done some work around activist burnout and despair. You know, it's interesting because I've been hearing a lot lately about environmental or climate trauma. They're talking about it in the media, people feeling hopeless about the state of the planet, you know, but this is something that animal rights people and the, and the vegan community have been dealing with for years. The despair that comes with this work, the, you know, knowing the horrors, all the suffering that the animals endure and just kind of feeling helpless to stop it, feeling like we're not, we just can't do enough. And I know that you have some thoughts on this. Can you talk a little more about this, about despair? Sure. Uh, well, despair goes deep when you are someone who has witnessed with, an, with open eyes the yeah. amount of suffering on the planet. And I also feel like the amount of suffering that we are aware of 
isn't what we're built for. We're built to maybe know about the suffering in our village or our region. Mm. But in this age of social media, television, movies, everything, we are aware of the suffering going on globally in wow. real time. Yeah. We know what's going on around the world. And we're not built for that. We're not built emotionally to handle that amount of suffering in our psyche. So if you're a caring person, if you're a sensitive person, if you're a person who cares about life, it's very, very difficult. You're carrying a burden that is beyond what you're built to carry. And I feel like it's necessary to have some tools to keep going during that, to keep feeling joy, to keep feeling love, to keep feeling positive. Yeah. And, you know, so the tools, I'll say the tools that I use, I, I also do a workshop called despair repair, in which I share these tools and others, you know, some tools that other people use that I don't, but um, it can feel very, oh, sort of frivolous to do something like, oh, I'm going to go dancing, or I'm going to just go hiking. Those things can feel frivolous in the face of what's going on on the planet because sometimes people like us will feel like every minute with all my energy, I should be working to end the suffering right. on the planet. Yeah, And because we're aware of so much of it, it's a nonstop job. We can't end all the suffering on the planet. It's impossible. It's an impossible goal. And yet we're driven we're driven to do everything we can with every minute of our day. Yeah. And that is an equation for absolute burnout and despair. If you don't balance it out. So I really think that the key is to find balance wherever you can, however you can in your life. And then you're a better spokesperson in the moments or the hours that you are able to work for all life on the planet. You know, so if let's say it is dancing, you know, it can feel like, oh my God, I'm dancing. And while I'm dancing, there are pigs who are suffering. There are goats who are suffering. There are cows and chickens who are suffering. There are, you know, children and women on the other side of the world who are suffering. You know, we have this awareness all the time in us if we're compassionate people who have chosen compassionate living. And that dancing is part of the balance. It's part of saying, I'm going to do self-care, whatever that looks like. So that's one of the things that I use for, for my balance. Um, I dance, I hike a lot, and I meditate. I sleep. Like, a lot of people aren't very good at that. Like, sleep at night. <laughs> you know, sleep with people who don't have joyful activities in their life don't make very inviting spokespeople for all life on the planet. We want to be an irresistible community that is a positive, healthy, well-rested community. So it's not frivolous to take care of yourself in the face of what's going on on the planet. It's crucial to take care of yourself. That is the main thing that I want people to understand who are in this movement. You're not doing anyone any good if you don't take care of yourself in the face of what's going on on earth. 
Wow. So important, really, really wise words, Ray. Thank you so much for all of that. Yeah, it's critical. It really is. And I think part of it is, is sustaining and maintenance, you know, for long-term being able to do this work long-term, because I remember in my youth, I was, I was, I I was so much better at compartmentalizing and so much better at uh, being able to just push and do so much. And I was able to, to watch the horrible videos and hear about the, just the awful, awful suffering uh, of the animals in the world. And then just go on and be like, you know, yeah, I'm doing my day. I'm, you know, that has really shifted for me. I now, I, it's, it's much harder now, uh, I think because it's been accumulating, it's been, you know, um, building. And now after 30 years, it's, you know, it's much, much harder for me to compartmentalize, to be able to watch those horrible videos or think about, or even just, you know, just think about uh, as you're writing an article or write or doing this work, whatever it is that you do, you have to think about the animal's suffering and actually not just think about it, get into great detail about it, you know, you know, really kind of meditate on it. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's tough. It is tough. It can be really, really hard on your psyche, on your well-being. I agree that it is so important to have those things that just kind of where you get out of it, you clear your mind, you step away so that you can have that balance and heal heal the, um, the wounds that it creates. So yeah, so important. And, and also too, I, I liked that you said, you know, about like dancing and finding joy. We also, we want to create the world we want to create, you know, I mean, that should be part of what we're doing is that we want to create a more beautiful and connected and loving world. And so you kind of have to live that to some degree, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Really to be that irresistible community. Like, yeah. wow, I don't know what those people are doing, but I want to be part of it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's who I want us to be as a community, not tired, angry, <laughs> depressed community. Nobody wants to join that community. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So Ray, you are a wonderful author. You've written numerous books. So tell us about some of your books and maybe particularly about your most recently published book. I know this book has a vegan theme throughout. So tell us a bit about your books. I think that probably every book that I will write in my life will always have a compassionate living animal rights vegan theme woven in it, sometimes hidden in it. Mm. Uh, So the the most recent book that I published is called Little Jew on the Soul Train. It's a semi-fictional memoir from my life. And that book is all about... Did did you grow up Jewish? I did. Uh I I grew up in um, a Jewish family. I never followed it as a religion, but, you know, you're always part of the tribe if you're born into it. (laughs) And I grew up in a town where there weren't many Jews, there were just a handful of Jews. And so it was a very misunderstood thing. I wasn't allowed in people's yards. Um, I wasn't allowed at the swimming pool. 
me and the African-Americans. <laughs> We're wow. not allowed at the swimming pool. Wow. You know, and I got beat up regularly for just for being Jewish. You know, and the first time I was five years old and these kids were waiting outside the school and just beat me up, pulled huge clumps of my hair out, oh, threw my hat in the street, my mittens in the street. It was winter. And, oh. and they were calling me what I thought they were saying was kite, like what you fly. Mm -hmm. and I remember as they were like kicking me and hitting me I just remember thinking why are they calling me a kite and when I came home my mom was so upset you know I was a mess big bald spots on my head from when they pulled hair out you know I was just a little five-year-old and I said mom they were calling me a kite and she had to explain that this word kike is like the n-word for blacks and we weren't allowed to say the n-word my whole family was um civil rights oriented my dad worked in civil rights so and was this was this the 60s yes that would have been 1961 okay yeah Mm -hmm. 61 and you know she had to explain what that was and so this is just a memoir of just sort of where i finally found comfort in the world and where I found that was when I finally went to a mostly black school for junior high, they didn't care what my religion was. It was great. It was like, oh, I found home in the African-American community. <laughs> and mm. so it's, um, it's a memoir about that. And, but of course, woven throughout is waking up to compassion, compassion for all life is interwoven and anim- there are animal rescue stories and vegan stories. And the person who it's told through the eyes of is a Swedish journalist who's interviewing um, the main character based on me. And she ends up having her eyes open to compassion and to other species and to all life and veganism and animal rescue. And it changes her life totally just doing the interview. Mm. and. So it's, it was really fun to write. So yeah, that process, that's another part for me of the despair repair of you know not going into despair is using what I love, which is writing. I love writing. It brings me so much joy, but using that tool to bring more compassion to the world. And yeah, I, I couldn't be happier than when I'm writing these books that interweave compassionate messages. So there is another book that I'm working on now that is bringing me a lot of joy to work on. I'm loving writing it. And that one is about a young woman who was born to a mother who was homeless. And she was basically born into homelessness, which I usually just call houselessness because, Mm. you know, home and house are different. Yeah. And she was born into that. But this this book also has vegan animal rights, compassion, rescue throughout. Yeah, just for me, it's really it's just a good way to like show up in the world and plant some seeds, just plant seeds of possibility. Um, I don't have any notion that I can turn around what's going on in the world in terms of suffering, but I can certainly plant some seeds. And I I rarely get to see what those seeds turn into. Sometimes I do, 
but I feel like that's what we get to do. We get to just like plant these very positive life affirming seeds and, and just have faith that they're just, you know, if enough of us do that, that's going to be the predominant culture, a culture of compassion. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you, you said uh, despair repair. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I love that. That's great. Despair repair. That's what we need. And I'll put a link to your books in the show notes uh, so that people, if they want to check out some of your books, that'll be in the show notes. Oh, thank you, Hope. Yeah, of course. And Ray, it's been so wonderful to talk to you. I have really enjoyed it. We probably need to wrap up soon. Do you have any uh, future plans, anything coming up that you want to tell us about? Oh, we always have projects and future plans. Uh-huh. <laughs> right now we're putting the finishing touches on a property that we're also living on currently. And we call it the Dove, which stands for Dome of Vegan Events. Huh. And we're creating a vegan retreat center here in New Mexico in the mountains um, where people can come and have workshops, um, small conferences, you know, bring groups to do mountain biking, any, any group, you know, if it's a yoga group or a dancing group, as long as it's 100% vegan, Hmm. um, we'll be welcome to use this space and it'll just be by donation. It's not for us. It will, it isn't really about uh, creating a moneymaker. For us, it's really about creating a space that where people can come and they'll know that the kitchen is a vegan kitchen. They'll know that the barbecue grill has never had meat on it. All the cleaning products are vegan, cruelty-free, not tested on animals. You know, so all of it, just a, a really life-affirming place mm. and... So it's been a labor of love for sure. It's about killing us. Um, <laughs> we been so hard on it. You know, wow. We've had a weird year of hail, flooding, mudslides. I mean, everything. It's been a weird year in New Mexico. We've had rain every day for the last three months. Mm. It, all the ev- weather everywhere. It's all yeah. so different and extreme. And yeah. 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 Awesome. So, and we've worked really hard. You know, we're, we're both project people. So we've like, we've hired contractors and they don't know what they're doing. And we're like, okay, you're done. We're going to finish this. So we've finished pretty much everything. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So I don't know. It's probably good. I always say to JC, my partner, Oh, this is either keeping us young or it's killing us. I'm not (laughs) sure. (laughs) A little bit of both, (laughs) but it's beautiful. It's in the Santa Fe national forest and Mm. there are bears and mountain lions and coyotes and, birds of every kind it's on our website um and it's called the dome of vegan events that's why dove okay yeah there's photos on our website if people want to see photos okay well i will put a link to that website in the show notes and uh thank you for letting us know about that i'm excited i would love to come and check it out sometime it sounds wonderful yeah. Hope it's been so great connecting with you. You are named appropriately. Oh, thank you, Ray. <laughs> Positive. You're one of the most hopeful people I know in the whole vegan movement. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. We got to keep that hope alive, you know, hoping that 
we can make this place better for all of us. So yeah, and in the meantime, we'll just alleviate as much suffering as possible. That's right. That's right. Ray, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you, dear. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. I want to remind listeners about our Vegan Voices contest. For this Vegan Voices series, I want to give away a copy of the book, the anthology Vegan Voices, Essays by Inspiring Changemakers, edited by Joanne Kong. And I'm going to give that away to a random winner. All you have to do to enter the contest is to write a positive review about this podcast on any podcast listening app like Apple Podcast or Spotify, or you can make a positive comment about this podcast on any social media site, on our Facebook page or your Facebook page or any of the social media platforms. Then all you have to do is copy what you wrote and email it to me so that I can enter you in the contest. I will be choosing a random winner and will announce the winner on our first episode of December. And for the winner, I can send you the book or send it to a friend or family member as a gift on your behalf. I hope, listeners, that you'll participate and help us out with some promotion so we can reach even more people with these wonderful conversations like Ray and I just had that inspire and educate and help create that irresistible community. I loved that description from Ray, an irresistible vegan community. So please write a review or comment, email it to me, enter the contest, and good luck. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope that it inspires you to live vegan.